May be seated. When you are, please open your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 13. Uh, Dave alluded to what we um, read about last time in Romans 13. Today we're going to look at the end of Romans 13, Romans 13 verses 8 through 14. But we're going to begin, we're going to read the whole chapter. We're going to begin at verse 1, and this will give us a context and show us how uh, the one topic flows into the next after after Paul says, listen, all authorities have been, the authority structure of this world has been set up by God, and he's the one that raises up and brings down leaders. And he tells us what? He says, you need to pay what is owed, paid taxes to whose taxes owed, revenues to who revenues is owed, give honor to those who honor his owed. And then he uh, talks about other things that are owed as the text continues. So with that introduction, let's read Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. And Lord, we um, would ask that you would apply it to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us that you would help us to do the hard work of listening. And Lord, we pray by your spirit you would explore our hearts, that you would take this text and that you would apply it to 
our own particular lives and our own situations. Lord, give us instruction. Give us encouragement. Tell us what we need to hear. Lord, we long to hear from you, to know you're listening. Lord, um, we need your help. We'd ask you to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. When you're trying to learn something, uh, you, you can really... Uh, be thankful and appreciate the value of a good teacher. Uh, for example, when you're starting a new job, it's fantastic. If you have someone who's willing and able to spend the time to really walk you through a job uh, step by step. And here's a pro tip. If you are um, fortunate enough to have someone like this that'll walk you through a new job step by step, take notes so you don't have to keep coming back and asking them, Again and again, it'll help you to learn quicker, and it'll be easier to remember, too. Well, Paul gives us instructions in this text. You may have noticed he wants you to learn something, and he wants you to put it into practice. Look at verse 8. He says, oh, no one anything except to love each other. He says, no one anything except to love each other. Love each other. Love fervently. But Paul doesn't just say love each other without giving you any other instructions, without helping you out. He gives you details. He gives you examples. And he says that this is important. Not only that, he tells you how to find victory. He gives you a comprehensive guide to Christian living. He tells you how to stop doing those things that you don't want to do and how to start doing those things that you're supposed to do. And we'll see that as we examine the text. Now let me give you a preview of where we're headed. In verses 8 through 10, Paul begins by saying that Christians are obligated to love others. And he says that love fulfills the law. It's exactly what the Lord wants you to do. He wants you uh, to love others like he loves you. So we're going to start with the mandate to love. The mandate to love. They say you should never, never ever loan money to friends or family. (laughs) Why? Why is that? Uh, Because if the loan doesn't get paid back, it could be the end of the relationship, right? Uh, When the person quits paying you back, what happens? The first thing they do is they start avoiding you, right? And then after uh, that, uh, it's the only thing you can think about when you see the person. It's a terrible thing to experience, whether you're the uh, person who has given the loan or, or you're the borrower. Well, in verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Don't default on your loans. Keep no outstanding debts except for one. Except for one to love each other. The word love here in the Greek is agape. It's often defined as a selfish 
uh, a selfless, sac- uh, sacrificial, or unconditional love. It's the kind of love that God has for his people. It's the kind of love that God has for you. And it's the kind of love that he wants you to demonstrate to others. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Paul uses the metaphor of debt to convey the ongoing obligation that we have to love one another. And the use of the term owe suggests a sense of ongoing responsibility rather than a one-time payment. Our commitment to love others is a continuous, unending obligation. You see, love, love is a way of life for us. Love is a way of life for Christ's disciples. Paul continues in verse 8 by writing, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The word fulfilled in this context, again, suggests an ongoing fulfillment, an active living out of the principles of God's law through a life that's characterized by love. And then Paul points us to the Ten Commandments. In verse 9, he writes, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you remember that Jesus was posed that question, what is the greatest commandment? And what did he say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, summarizing the first four commandments. And to love, and he said, the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself, summarizing the last six. Paul's pointing us to the moral law so that you'll know how to love your neighbor. He points you to several commandments in the second table of the law, commandments five through 10. Now you might look at these commandments here in your Bible and you think, uh, there's not much here. <laughs> what, 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 am I, what am I supposed to do with this? But if you think about the commandments with some depth, for instance, consider the seventh commandment, the first one that Paul lists you shall not commit adultery. And and maybe you think, uh, excuse me, I'm not cheating on my spouse. In fact, I'm not even married. I'm not even married. How has this given me instruction? But if you're a student of the scriptures, you know that Jesus said that this and other commandments pierce to the depth of your thoughts and the desires of your heart so that if you lust for someone, you're guilty of violating the seventh commandment. So we love others by our actions and also by guarding our thoughts and even our hearts. This commandment, this commandment is about faithfulness, isn't it? Loyalty. It's about commitment. How do you keep the seventh commandment? Be faithful. Be loyal. Be committed to your spouse. Be dedicated to them. Devoted. Love them with all your heart. 
And you can start applying the principles of this commandment to others around you. This is helpful for those of you who may be single. How do you love others? Be a faithful friend. Be a loyal employee. Be the kind of person that you can depend on. The kind of person you can count on. Trustworthy. You can apply this to other commandments Paul lists as well. You shall not murder. The sixth commandment. Well, don't kill anyone, right? I hope you're doing good on that one. Like, don't, don't murder, don't, don't kill anybody. But there's a spiritual aspect to this as well, right? Hatred, cruelty, being mean, nasty. Don't hate others. Don't be mean and nasty to people. Watch that attitude. Ah, oh, guard your thinking. Guard your thinking. It's where it starts. What's the contrary action? How do we keep the commandment? What's the contrary action? Be loving. Huh? Caring. Gentle. Kind. Compassionate. Life-giving. So many people are lonely. They're discouraged. They won't even tell you sometimes. Depressed. They struggle. Speak an encouraging word to someone who's down. Be life-giving. Be life-giving. Invest in people. Invest in people who are struggling. Smile at others. Give people a smile. Build others up. Paul points us to the eighth commandment as well. You shall not steal. Don't take things that don't belong to you. What's a gist? Don't hurt people. Stop hurting people. No, help people. Don't rob them, help them. Show mercy. Be generous. Don't steal. Give. Give. Be like your Father in heaven. You shall not covet the Tenth Commandment. Coveting is wanting what someone else has and not being content with what God has given you. When you covet, you feel envy, jealousy. No, Christians are called to be genuinely enthusiastic and supportive when others experience success and moments of happiness. You see, the Ten Commandments, they expose our hearts, don't they? They, they expose the ways in which we fail. They expose our own need of a Savior but they also teach us how to love and care for others. Consider what Paul says in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
As Christians, we recognize our ongoing obligation to love others, fulfilling the law. Yet Paul doesn't stop there. He also draws our attention to the urgency of the moment that we're living in. In verses 11 through 12, he challenges us to grasp the significance of the time and to respond accordingly. This leads us to our second heading, the moment for love. The moment for love. Have you ever been the one who is responsible for gathering your friends or your family and making sure that everyone arrives at the destination on time? You got to be a little good at math, right? You got to be able to calculate how long is it going to take for us to get there? Subtract how long is it going to take to get these people together and ready and in the car? When do I need to start bugging people, right? (laughs) Maybe you've had this job and then you start walking up to people and telling us, you need to get out of bed. Start taking a shower. You need to get your clothes on. Quit playing. I told you to stop playing with those toys, right? You got to get together. Come on, everybody. We, We need to get to the car, Let's go, let's go, let's, let's go. The time is near. Well, we see that Paul is doing something similar in verses 11 and 12. He wants to wake us up and get us going. Consider what he says. Besides this, you know what time it is that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Paul urges the Romans to wake up. He doesn't want the church to be spiritually asleep. He wants you to be awake, ready for action. He wants Christians to shake off Shake off the spiritual lethargy or complacency. He wants you to be fully awake to the challenges and the opportunities that surround you. They are everywhere. This call to wake up carries a sense of urgency. It urges you to be actively involved in your faith, discerning the signs of the times and living with a readiness for the unfolding purposes of God. They are before you. They are before you. In verse 11, Paul says, besides this, you know the time. Paul's sense of urgency is stressed in that word there, time. Paul wrote, this letter in Greek. And he had two options when he spoke of time there. He could have used chronos, which uh, emphasizes chronological calendar time, or keros, which emphasizes the quality or the kind of time. Paul uses keros. Keros refers to the moment or, or the season of time. It emphasizes the qualitative aspect of time. It's not just about the passage of time, but the right, opportune, and 
appropriate time for a specific event. Paul's referring to this decisive and crucial moment in God's unfolding plan. It's a moment pregnant with the potential for action. There's a need for alertness and readiness and a proper response to what God is doing in this particular season. Well, what moment is it? What season is it? The New Testament calls it the last days. Not in the chronological sense, the last era or season before the return of Christ. This is the season for the gospel to advance. This is the era of repentance unto salvation. This is the day of salvation. The last days began with the first coming of Christ and will culminate in the day of the second coming. In verse 12, Paul uses the metaphor of night and day to represent the contrast between our current era and the anticipated era of Christ's return and righteousness. He writes, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. This metaphor serves as a wake-up call to recognize the urgency of the moment that we're living in. Paul wants us to be spiritually awake and alert, understanding that the night of sin and spiritual darkness is waning and the day of Christ's glorious return is approaching. Jesus said, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. Stay awake, he said. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that it exhorts us to stay awake or to stay alert quite frequently. Why, why is that? Because we need to be reminded often. What's our tendency? Honestly, we're going to be honest. What's our tendency? To be tired, to get tired to get sleepy. We go through spiritual peaks and then we go to valleys, don't we? If you've ever had a new job, you know how excited you are when you first get to that job. You show up to work on time. You don't ever call in sick. You take notes. You put your best foot forward to be a fantastic employee. But what happens over a period of time? Complacency, laziness, presumption, a dullness can set in. You, you can have a tendency to lose your first love. The same thing can happen with our faith, spiritual sleepiness and slumber. Yet in the face of this tendency, the Bible says, stay awake. Acknowledge the urgency of the hour to love God and to love others. Your witness counts, but it counts now, not after Christ returns. Your witness matters. 
Stay awake. The time is urgent. But how? How? How do I stay awake? I need spiritual notos. No, we stay awake by going to the Savior who is love. Jesus is full of grace, rich in grace. He will never run out no matter how many times you come to him for it. As the text continues, Paul emphasizes the power of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, the means of love. That's our third heading, the means of love. We just talked about starting a new job, right? And the zeal that we often have uh, when we start off. And what comes with a new job, a new set of tools, right? We use tools for all kinds of things. If you're a student, you use uh, a notebook and you use a pen and you use a, a laptop, another type of notebook. And if you're working in the kitchen, you use pots and pans and mixers and measuring cups. And if you're in the garage, you use ladders and drills and screws and air compressors. We use tools in order to get a job done. We use tools to work more efficiently. Well, as our text continues, Paul points us to spiritual tools that Christ has given us who are following him. Tools that'll help us to be faithful in our walk to him. Look at the second sentence in verse 12. So then, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul continues to use this metaphor of night and day, but now he starts speaking in terms of darkness and light. He says that we need to cast off or leave behind our old sinful ways, the things of this world. We need to leave them behind and put on the things that pertain to Christ. And you'll notice that he speaks of putting on the armor of light. Where else does Paul talk about armor? Ephesians 6, right? Ephesians 6, particularly in verses 14 through 18. In Ephesians 6, Paul describes the armor. He calls it the full armor of God. He describes the armor that we need to put on to succeed as Christ's disciples. He pictures life as a battle, and he points us to the armor we need to not only survive, but to thrive. He says, fasten on, fasten on the belt of truth. It it represents the foundational truths of the Christian faith. You need to know them, keep them near, strap yourself in them. And Paul says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. This guards the believer's heart. It represents the imputed righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. What's that? What's the imputed righteousness that comes through faith in Christ? It's that righteousness that we obtain having faith in Christ 
right? There's the double transfer. Our sin is gathered up and transferred to Christ and his righteousness is imputed or transferred to us and God pours out his wrath for our sins on Christ. We switch places as it were. The breastplate of righteousness, are you wearing it? Yes, indeed, you must wear it if you are to be saved. Next, Paul says, put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. As we stand firm in the gospel, we are equipped to navigate life's challenges with the firm foundation of peace. And then Paul says, take up the shield of faith. Faith becomes a shield against the attacks of doubt and fear, of untruths or half-truths. Watch out for half-truths. Trusting what God tells you in his word provides you with protection. And he mentions the helmet of salvation. Assurance of salvation protects your mind in the midst of spiritual battles. Then there's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword is distinctive among the pieces of armor. On the defensive side, it guards against falsehoods and doubts and deceptive influences. It functions as a discerning instrument that separates truth from error. On the offensive side, the sword is a tool for proclaiming the truths of the gospel, confronting spiritual adversaries, and advancing the kingdom of God. And Paul concludes by exhorting the Ephesians to be continual in prayer. Maybe one of the most important aspects of it all. Continual in prayer, connected to the source of power. Connected to the one who has power to do all of his holy will. Including you, providing you with the grace you need. And how does he conclude? He says, to that end, keep alert. There it is again. Stay awake. You're living in a world full of temptation, if you haven't noticed. Temptation from within and temptation from without. Paul says, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And he continues in verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The armor of light is what we must put on. We are to wake up and get dressed in our battle gear. And in verse 14, Paul adds, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, our source of power, our source of love. 
We must put on the armor of light and live with the awareness that we belong to Christ because the darkness still threatens us. The desires of the flesh still attract us. That's part of the war that we find ourselves in. It's the truth. It's the truth. Our text says we need to cast off the works of darkness. And it mentions some of them in our text. Many of the Roman Christians were saved from these lifestyles, and so were some of us. And Paul warns about backsliding. Sin is dangerous, sin is deadly. Paul's urging us to be proactive in our commitment to Christ. We're supposed to be actively resisting the pool of worldly desires and ensuring that our lives reflect the power of being clothed in the righteousness and character of the Lord Jesus. Paul tells us to put on the character of the Lord Jesus instead of engaging in sins. Let Christ, let Christ be the clothes you wear. You should put on his character and make no provision for the flesh. What's that to say to put on, put on Christ-like clothes? It's to say, to put him on is to say to follow his example. Put him on. Make no provision for the flesh. To make no provision for the flesh means to say no to any thought or action that may lead you to sin. Don't plan. Don't plan to sin. Don't daydream about it. Stop daydreaming about it. Don't seek comfort from sin. Don't flirt with sin. Don't make any provision for the flesh. Instead, direct your mind to the promises of God in Scripture. Focus your mind on the beauty of Christ. Follow the lifestyle of the Savior in this present age. Remind yourself of the glories that are to come. Jesus is better than sin. Jesus is better than sin. Our text began with the imperative for Christians to fulfill the obligation of love. Paul instructed us to owe no one anything except for the ongoing debt of love, highlighting the selfless and sacrificial nature of love. We were awakened to the urgency of the present time. The moment of salvation draws nearer. And Paul urges us to be spiritually awake, discerning the signs and embracing the challenges and opportunity of this decisive season. The night of sin is fading and the day of Christ's return approaches. 
We've been equipped with spiritual tools, the armor of light. Drawing parallels to Ephesians 6, Paul urges us to cast off the works of darkness, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a proactive commitment, making no provision for the flesh, but instead clothing ourselves with the character of Christ. As believers, we should passionately embrace the mandate, recognizing the urgency of the moment, and we should employ the means provided by Christ. Love fervently. Be awake and equipped, and above all, put on the Lord Jesus Christ in every aspect of your lives. May your love for others and for the Savior be a shining testimony in these crucial times. Amen. Lord, we do pray that you would awaken us from slumber. Lord, we pray that you would keep us awake, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would stir our hearts, that you would fill us full of zeal for you and for your kingdom. Lord, we'd ask that you would keep our eyes firmly fixed on you and on your word and on the truths of the gospel. Oh, Lord, how we need you. We do pray that you would be doing a work in our hearts. And Lord, we would pray for those who, yet, uh, who are yet to come to embrace and know you. Lord, many of us, we are surrounded by people who have yet to come to faith. We'd lift them up to you, asking that you would be doing a work, even now, in their hearts and minds, calling them to yourself. Lord, keep calling. We'd ask that you would awaken them from spiritual slumber, that they might embrace you as Lord and Savior. Oh, Lord Jesus, hear our prayer for your own glory's sake. Amen.